Hello and welcome to Exploring the Blank Page, a podcast for readers and writers of young adult fiction. I'm host Emily Hendricks, writer of YA sci-fi and fantasy, and my co-host is Kristen Crum, author of the YA rom-com It Happened at Christmas. The Blank Page is where we all start, published or not, and we're excited to share stories that inspire your writing or influence your next book choice. Now let's get to the episode. Welcome back to Exploring the Blank Page. You guys, have we got... A treat for you today. We have New York Times bestselling author Scott Rankin. It is so cool to talk to him today. Oh my gosh, you guys are not ready. I mean, I know we say this probably almost every episode, but you're really not ready this time. <laughs> Scott is amazing. I have long been a fan. I started with his Nixia series and have just read his recent release, which we talk about on this episode. He's got such a creative mind, and it comes out so well in his books. But the best part is that we get to dig in and ask him all the questions. Yes, and something that I absolutely loved about this episode is he shared about his first two projects and getting 177 rejections, and he kept going. Mm -hmm. Also. His new book, like you mentioned, Adore in the Wall, Adore in the Dark, which is so good, almost wasn't. I know. Like it almost did not happen. I love that we get to ask him about that. Um, and that he is just so transparent, which I think is another thing that you guys are really going to appreciate about him. Um, not only does he have a lot of knowledge of the industry, but he is willing to talk about it and he does share things with us. And oh, you guys, it's just gonna be great. I'm excited for you to listen to this. So sit back and enjoy this episode with Scott Rinkin. Hi, Scott. It is so awesome to have you on our podcast today. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your publishing journey so far? Yeah. So my name is Scott Rankin. I'm an author of both young adult and middle grade books. Um, probably most well known uh, for the Nixia trilogy, which was kind of my opening series. But recently, uh, A Door in the Dark landed at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. So that might be uh, edging into into that territory of what I'm known for. Um, but I'm, uh, yeah, I'm a, a teacher turned writer. So I, I started um, always loving to write, but I, I, you know, wasn't great coming out of college uh, at it. And so it took time and effort. Uh, I taught for about five years and then just started writing books for my students. Um, and those are the ones that ended up, you know, working their way through the cracks of publishing and becoming books. So that's, that's where I'm at now. That's awesome. I love that. I worked with students as well, but not as a teacher in like a youth kind of situation. And I just, I knew for myself as well as writing is just like, I wanted books that they could enjoy themselves, you know? So yeah. I love that. The motivation is great. Absolutely. I've been working with, or what I think I've been working with teenagers since I was a teenager <laughs> is what I always say. So I, I, got into college. I was a young life leader in, in college for about three years uh, and then immediately went to teaching. And then now I, I travel around the country talking to students still. So I, for the last six years, I have visited about, you know, 600 plus schools. So I'm still sort of very actively engaged with 
that readership and making sure that voice doesn't fade from from my brain as I step in to write books for them. I want to make sure I I know that voice really well. So mm-hmm. I noticed that on your website, not something that obviously we'll link here too, but I think that's just so great that, that you have access to those students and that they have access to you because I think there'd be nothing better than reading a book and then having the author come in and just being able to talk with them. It'd be super fun. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's unique. I, I just didn't get to do that. I, I start most of my talks telling students about how I was I, I was a writer. I loved to write, but I never met an author. I kind of thought they were all dead. And so to have one walk into my school would have been, yeah. it would have definitely accelerated a already deep passion. Um, and I would have visually seen this is something not just like that I love and enjoy and kind of do in my free time. It is something that you can do for a living. And I did not know that. I didn't know that for a while. Mm. So cool. So you have mentioned A Door in the Dark and how it landed on the New York Times bestsellers list. But last week on Twitter and on Instagram, you shared how this book almost wasn't. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and where it is today? (laughs) Yeah, um, absolutely. So the, I feel like first it's important to say that I think it's just it's so crucial that we are transparent with each other as authors. Um, we don't have we have a very intentionally obscure industry. Uh, publishers kind of would enjoy it staying that way because it benefits the publisher, not really benefits the author. And so, anytime we have the chance to share sort of insights into our experience and what happened and in this behind the scenes look, the beneficiary is all of the other authors who are sort of unaware of what's going on. And so, yeah, um, that thread touched on a lot of like real, it's like a kind of a long winding trail, but essentially uh, Nixia, my first book was a lead title. It was bought for a large amount of money. It was a, a bought at auction. It was definitely like meant to be this big book. Uh, and it hit the indie bestseller list at the time, which I'll be honest, I did not know was a big deal. No one really told me it was a big deal. These days it's celebrated just as like intentionally and with just as much passion as the New York Times list, I think, which is great because our indies are wonderful. Um, but I just didn't know. And so it felt still like a failure because my book did not land on the New York Times bestseller list. And and you would have thought on the next three calls with my, my, with my editor and other people there that like someone had died uh, because it just was so grim. It was like YA in particular, young adult in particular, has this weird immediacy to it where it's like hey did you crash through the gates in week one no okay we'll get out of here then mm-hmm. and it's just an odd thing that we do it's not true of adult it's not true of middle grade it's it's not true of a lot of genres but YA in particular is like it's like what's hot now um and so Nixia had a good life it, I, I did I and still do a lot of school visits that book has succeeded very much beyond my expectations However, it, it was certainly tracking and my my series after that were tracking in such a way that like the sales weren't, you know, off the charts. And what happens and what a lot of people don't know is that you have a track record, right? Your name is attached to numbers. 
and that's in Barnes and Noble's system, that's in different independent bookstore system, it's in BookScan, and anyone that's really deep and plugged into the industry can kind of search your name and look up some of those numbers. And, you know, debuts get these very splashy deals sometimes because you are an unknown entity. Like they don't know if you're the next Suzanne Collins or not. And so they're going to take a gamble and often they will gamble higher. But once there's a track record, once there's something in place, you kind of get paid what they see you are worth on paper. Mm -hmm. And so for lack of a better term or, or way to describe it, I had published eight books with Random House. My editor adored my work and, and wanted to keep working with me, but just couldn't afford to keep paying me money for books. Uh, and that was both sad, right? But it was also exciting. My agent and I knew we were going to get the chance to go work somewhere else where your track record, while not pristine, you still have the book scan numbers, you still have the number of sales and, and other people can access that to a degree. The only difference is that on Random House's books, I cost money. On Simon & Schuster's books, I, I have done nothing. I You're cost unknown. zero. Yeah. I'm an unknown, <laughs> right? And so it was seen as kind of a reset, but we knew it would be relatively tough because my young adult series, Ash Lords and Bloodsworn, that, that duology came out during COVID. It, it didn't sell like hotcakes. And so as a result, we kind of knew like, hey, we've got this great book. We believe in the concept. We believe in the story, but we'll see what happens. Um, and what that thread talked about is that what happened was no one bought it, uh, at least at first. So we pitched, uh, you know, kind of how you would a bunch of different editors across a bunch of different publishing houses and slowly got rejections back. Um, and they were close rejections. They were like, I love Rin, or I love the story, or wow, this is like kind of a new dark thriller fantasy. Like, I kind of like the pace of this, but I just don't, I don't see it working for us. And we got that again and again, until we were down to just two names. Um, and again, I want to emphasize, like I did on that thread, these weren't like, it's not like we, they were like the low end editors. It's not like anyone would sneeze at these editors. These were great names. They just were the last two to respond. And on the same day that I got one of them sent a rejection to us, the other person, our very last option, said yes. Uh, and her name's Kate Perswimmer. She's fantastic. She's she's kind of like a rising name in the industry. She's had several books hit the list that are that are hers. Um, and immediately within three months of us signing with her, she got promoted to senior editor. So she's she's a great name and a great person. But all it took was that one editor, that one name, and literally she was the last name. Like she was the last person that we could have had purchased the book and she just happened to buy it. So that's crazy. I love, that <laughs> I love <story>. it. <laughs> um, so I was able to listen to another podcast interview that you had had did recently. And if I heard correctly, your first two books, you racked up around like 177 rejection letters. That is correct. Yeah. So and <laughs> My failure extends well beyond this recent. Uh, that's the one thing that's really important too, is like publishing is going to reject you at every stage. I still remember I, I was sitting at New York Comic-Con and I sat down with Victoria Schwab, who is an established pro. She is a huge name in the fantasy and young adult fantasy world. 
and she had just signed this massive deal with tour like tons of books tons of money and she sat down and was like, Scott, I got like 10 rejections right like with it, like since that happened. And it just was this great reminder that at every phase of this industry, no matter who you are, no matter how big of a name, not everyone wants to work with, with you or your book. It's not everyone's cup of tea. And so to get accustomed to rejections is incredibly important at the query stage. It's important at, when you're submitting to editors. Um it's important to understand that like there are readers who will reject your book and not like it. Uh, and, and building that thick skin along the way is just pivotal. It's pivotal. Mm -hmm. But I was just thinking too, just because I know that people who are listening are more than likely kind of up and coming. They're interested in publishing, interested in writing. Maybe they're not there yet. And then I know that some are. And just to hear that and know it doesn't matter where you start. Everybody, I just did a post on this actually recently, but everybody starts at the beginning. And it, you know, you didn't start off miles ahead of anyone else. You had to kind of put the work in and to not let those rejections hold you back, I think is something that's really big because it it's terrible. I know both uh, Kristen and I have gotten tons of rejections as well. And it's not something to let you, or it's not something to stop you. It's something to push you forward is at least the way that I try to see it. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's important to say the numbers out loud, right? So I wrote two books and garnered 177 rejections. And while I think that's a big number, uh, when I first did an event with Marie Lou, she kind of politely tapped my arm and she was like, Scott, that's so cute. I, I have had, she, I think her number was like 618 rejections oh across like seven books of across eight years. And she <laughs> still kept going because she loves to write and she loves to create and she knew she could find a way forward. Now, I have another friend in my writing group. His name is Katie Edwards. He writes some of the best urban fantasy for adult that's out there. And he only got one rejection, but we just don't talk to him right. anymore. You know? <laughs> he's the oddball. That's right. We just don't. We, he's not invited to the party now, and that's fine. No. no, everyone has a different road. It always is going to involve rejection at some stage. And, and, and if you learn to kind of make that a part of your process I know that's so hard it's so hard to say it when you feel the sting of it right in that moment but if you can make it a part of your process you will find that at every stage you're more prepared than a lot of folks are I'm writing that down so that we can go back and like quote it it was good yeah, very good <laughs> I know we're always trying to remember where do we stop in some of these things um well I do think we should move on to talk a little bit about A Door in the Dark. I binged it just, what, like a week or so ago. I got it on audiobook. It it literally took me like a day and a half because I just did chores all day. <laughs> That's when you know it's good because you're finding things to do <laughs> so you can just listen. Um, and I so enjoyed it. It was so fun and it was very immersive. And I mean, I'm in the middle of Ashwords actually now. I read Nixia when it first came out, really loved it, and then... I don't know what happened. I haven't read the next two. So they're on my pile as well. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't the book. It was more of my time. And then, I mean, you see, I've got a ton of books behind me and that's just a, a little example of the piles of books in my house that I have to go through. But all that to say, I so enjoyed it and I loved the magic system. Um, as I was saying, it's so immersive and just very unique. So tell us a little bit about A Door in the Dark and then maybe a little bit of how you came to this like crazy magic system. Yeah. So A Door in the Dark um, 
follows six wizards uh, who are heading home for winter break. It is time to like say bye to school, um, but in their particular school, uh, I think school bus for wizards. So it's not a it's not a school bus that gets them home. They head to the teleportation room. Um, and what's supposed to happen is they go in this room, they light a candle, they wait, you know, for a spell to go off. And when the spell goes off, they get whisked back safely and soundly to their individual neighborhoods. And it's worked a hundred times. It's, it's, it's worked every time they've ever done it, of course, because it's a normal spell. But on the day that the book takes place, uh, a fight breaks out. Uh, kind of an argument has been bubbling up to the surface. And while, you know, punches are being thrown, spells are being cast, the, the teleportation teleportation spell still goes off. Uh, and unfortunately, doesn't take them back home safe and sound. It whisks them out to the middle of nowhere. Um, so they land in wilderness. Uh, all six of them land there, and one of them is dead on arrival. And they've got to figure out, like, how do we get home? Was that an accident? Are we with a murderer now? Like, do, did you lie about what you saw? So the survivors all have to figure out, A, how are we going to get home? We have limited resources, no food, almost no magic, very limited amount of all of those. Um, and we also, like, don't know if we trust each other. So how am I going to trust you to get me home if I literally kind of disliked you for the last four years of our time studying together? And so... Um, <laughs> It's a survivor story. I, I always say it's kind of like the hopefully the perfect merge of fantasy and thriller. It's both of those things, which is what Kate, my editor, loved so much about it and why she decided to buy it is because she just felt it married those genres so nicely and used fantasy really as a vehicle for that thriller type of story. Now, for the magic system, I mean... I don't know. I, that's like my whole, On your head. Like, that's my jam. Like I love <laughs> the world build. And I knew, um, I knew frankly that my main character was this studious, smart, uh, Hermione with a little bit more of a knife's edge type person. And so I wanted a, a magic system that would allow her to shine. And so naturally the magic system that lets her shine is this very logical step-by-step. -step. If you've done the research, the study, you can kind of pair these different spells together. It's very complex, but at the same time, the limiting factor to their magic system is that the, the wealthier you are, the more magic you get each month and to use. And so Rin comes into this with X amount of spells on her wand that she has to carefully protect because as the one who has like the best skill set, that's great and all, but her wand can only do so much magic while they're out there. So she has to kind of pick and choose her spots to shine because if she wastes too much of it, they might come to an, another mountain pass where she's needed and she just doesn't have the ability to do anything. And so um, I just loved that system that forced them to rely on each other as well. So they have to pool their magic. They have to figure out, because you can't just hand someone your wand and say, hey, go, go do some spells. You kind of have to allow the other people to do some of the work that you can't do. Um, so it kind of forces them to, to really work together. And again, they don't exactly want to work together. I thought it was great. And there's one scene and I won't give any spoilers, but uh, the bridge, and that's all I'm going to say. So cool. So, <laughs> so cool. You so visual. Oh man. How long <laughs> I've wanted to put that, like I've had that element in my brain and my notes forever. And I've tried so many different stories and then finally I found the right story for that exact piece of magic to exist. And it is the perfect marriage of like, 
logic and science but like breathless magic at the same time yeah. It, yeah. it felt so magical and yet very realistic I was like I mean if I lived in this world I could totally see how this would work like I wish that it worked here <laughs> but yeah I thought that was really really cool um and I was just thinking too about and again I don't want to I don't want to say anything that might be spoilery but I am a little curious about I feel like Ren is like a true morally gray character. If you think that's too spoilery, we can cut this out. <laughs> but I am just curious how you approach that with her. If you're, if you feel okay to talk about that. Yeah, I feel okay to talk about that. I, I feel like um, she is morally gray and I think she is forced to be morally gray. If that makes sense. Like her society has just dealt her a hand that is, unfair for who she is she is a brilliant spellmaker she is a great wizard and yet is having trouble finding like an internship that people who are 40 60 80 spots back in her class are just sliding into with no problem and so Rin's desperation is in part born from a broken system uh and then the other part of it is that she does have this this backstory that she has this this other goal, this other thing that she's working on that is not just like, hey, how do I get a good job? It's also, how do I reckon with my past? And that is an important thing that like, again, edges her into morally gray territory. Um, although I do think that I was pretty careful to look at and try to make sure that I felt every step she kind of takes is still justified by mm -hmm. something. And and people will argue with that. That's fine. People will have, <laughs> I, I've already seen a couple of reviews where people are like, I just can't, I can't do, I can't go there with Rin. And it's like, that's fine. I think what she's doing is well within reasonable, logical decision-making because I think again, she's up against odds she shouldn't have to be up against. Mm -hmm. Well, and her story is not over, right? I would assume. <laughs> is, is, this, is this is this a trilogy yeah. or is this a duology? Mm -hmm. Or do you do you know yet? I, so that's, again, <laughs> let's, let's, let's cross wires with business and art here, right? So mm -hmm. um, publishers have a really hard time making trilogies work for them. Uh, unless you're a massive name, massive name. It's just, you're naturally going to bleed numbers eat book to book. I think the mm -hmm. average norm is like for a book one, you'll get half your readers for book two, and then maybe half your readers on book three from book two. So it's just kind of natural. Some of that is just how readers work. Some of it is just like people don't realize the book came out. And like, I can't tell you how many students I've had who are like, Nixia is my favorite book. When's Nixia unleashed out? And I'm like, five years ago, like a while, <laughs> a while ago. Um, so it's just, it, that's just natural tendency within our industry. And the business side of that says, let's not do trilogies because we're going to lose money. And so in spite of the success, in spite of it hitting New York Times bestseller list, what happened for me was very interesting because again, I talked about my track record, all that. Initially, my deal was for one book, right? One book, just one book. And it's more traditional to get a two book deal. That's normal. But again, I, I they're, sort of testing the waters on me so they said one book and then what happened was very fascinating is we got a sudden email that initially we were like oh we're not going to get to talk book two book three anything for more books until much later you know maybe next year and then early in 2022 we get this email that's like hey we want to buy two more books and we're like 
where'd that come? Like my agent called me. She was like, did you see this? <laughs> uh, and it <laughs> turned out that in-house, A Door in the Dark had had a lot of momentum that when they took it to the big pitch with all, you know, they kind of head in and it's like the higher ups and they pitch, you know, probably a hundred books in a row. Apparently everyone just reacted really strongly to the package, to the title, to the concept. And all of a sudden they're like, we need more books from you. Thank you. Uh, and so that's a good thing, but obviously it's like puts you in that space of like, my head was like, this could probably just be a standalone if I want it to be. Mm -hmm. And then I leaned into the sequel. So I wrote the sequel, it's edited, it's done, it's finished. And we're at that turning point again, where it's like, my editor would love a book three. She thinks it deserves a book three. Whether or not she can convince people on the money side that yes, this is a book three is totally up in the air. And she she does really love another concept that I'm currently working on for a standalone fantasy. So it's just, I'm I'm gonna do more books, whether or not they're the books we all want or or a different set of books is kind of up in the air. And that's so hard as an author, I think, to try and because do you wrap it up completely? Do you not? You know, there's just a lot. I mean, I think for listeners who are who are readers here, it sometimes you just don't know. Like as an author, you're not yeah. sure. Yeah, I mean, book two, I think, satisfies the storyline and it, it it can certainly be a landing place and I'm happy to let it be. But book three, where we could like explore some of the consequences of what happens in book two would be delightful and mm -hmm. would work out perfectly and would allow me to completely conclude everything. So I think either way, I will I will do my best to satisfy mm -hmm. the reader. But it's it's definitely one of those things where it, you're right. It kind of leaves you in this like sort of odd in between space where you're just not quite sure where you should head. Mm -hmm. And now we have to wait for book two. Oh. <laughs> book I hangover I, was I'm, real. <laughs> yeah, I'm currently in Fairfax, Virginia, visiting schools. And I, I already got a long talking to when I, I got up in front of the students. I said, well, the good news is this is edited. It's completed. So that typical year long wait, it won't, it shouldn't be that long. It'll probably be closer to like eight to 10 months. And they're all like, what? That's a very long time. And so I've already, <laughs> I've already been told I'm, 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 I'm ruining lives, but I promise it won't be like eight to 10 years. So at least that's there's true. that. <laughs> yes, that's good. That's good. So let's talk a little bit about your writing process here at the blank page. We love to ask our our author guests, how they approach the blank page. So what does that look like for you when you have a new story idea? Are you a pantser? Are you a plotter? A little bit of both? Yeah. So I, for a new story idea, um, it's kind of like I start with the beginning. I start with the end. I have a few touch points that I want to hit um, in between. I kind of let my characters have room to grow. But in terms of like facing the blank page each morning, <laughs> I actually don't do that technically. I start every writing day with yesterday. So I will go, let's say I wrote three pages. I'll go back to the start of those three pages. I will lightly edit, right? Nothing big, nothing structural, just kind of word choices, paragraph breaks. And by the time I hit the blank page, I am in the voice I've got the rhythm down and it's just so helpful and so that's kind of my number one approach though day to day in and out of writing is to look at what I did yesterday and allow what I did yesterday to fuel what I'm doing today um, because you're right that blank page is intimidating but it doesn't have to be mm -hmm. 
Has that yeah. process changed um, through, I mean, you're on book 10, I think, right? This was just released. So has it changed through your through the years of writing, but also has it changed between your middle grade and your young adult, or do you approach it all the same? I approach it mostly the same. I think the big difference from book to book is honestly just how well a book is flowing. Some books just just pour out at you, like they've been dying to get out for years. And some books are like, a dental appointment and you're like which teeth am I pulling today um it's just it's just each one's a little different it depends on the character the voice all of that um I do try generally to stick to the same approach simply because it's worked so far like I, I think um I will the day that it like stops working entirely I will mix it up and change speeds but for now it has been this great recipe that has allowed me to to write and to write a lot so I'm I'm trying to stick with it whenever possible So this is one of my favorite questions to ask every author we have on here because I'm just fascinated with how everybody how each author has a different process of like day to day in and out, but what does your typical writing day look like for you? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the Sarah Dessen method. She kind of talks about how after two to three hours, she's not, it's not humming anymore. It's not working. Things are mush. And so I, I feel like I do try to work in, in smaller chunks than rather than trying to push myself to do 10 hours straight or whatever, like big, big, big sprints. So you know, my typical day, and this is the beauty of being an author too, is that I, I get to just kind of be with my kids. So they wake up very early and I <laughs> hang out with them. I help get them to school. And right around 930, when when two of them are off to school and we just have the little one, I'll start. So 930 to about 12, when I go back and pick them back up, <laughs> uh, I help with like nap times and quiet times. And then I might get to write from like 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. So it's two, two and a half to three hour chunks. And if I'm on like a wild deadline and I haven't really been in a while, um, I might have to write another one when they go to bed. I might have to write one before they wake up. During COVID, I, I pretty much woke up every day right around 4.30 a.m., 5 a.m. And I would Ooh. just write. Because I I knew I knew the two year old was going to be up at at you know the crack of dawn and so if I wanted a solid chunk of time where no one was interrupting and I couldn't just go to a coffee shop then that was what I did and so yeah I try to 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 do at least two writing sessions um, each day when I'm at home obviously I also travel I I do school visits I do a lot of things that don't allow for that schedule to be maintained every single day um, but yeah it's about that. That's awesome. I've I've noticed listening to other um, interviews and reading other interviews, you're very, very, very intentional about spending time with your kids and family time. And I wanted to know if you had any tips for other writers out there who are juggling this whole parenthood writing life situation. Wow, it's so hard because I feel like right, the, writing in parenting are like two of mm -hmm. the most notoriously difficult things to say I do this and then it's like great that doesn't work for our family it doesn't work for my kid like and so it's tough I will say the thing that I know I do well and the thing that like I know works for me and has been tremendously effective and it's partially just a personality thing 
is my great, great, like super talent. Uh, my super, if I was a superhero, this would be the only power that I was given uh, is that I compartmentalize so well. And so my writing time is my writing time. I am locked in. It's all that's on my brain. And when I'm with my kids, I'm not, I'm not thinking about my work. I am thinking about this little Lego thing he's building and whether or not I can be helpful or whether or not I'm hurting the project. And so <laughs> I, I just, it's, it is definitely a, a, not an easy thing to train yourself on. And my wife and I talk about it all the time because she is not this way and has a harder time when those things merge and blend. But like, I just keep those blocks of time separated. And I know that this part, this little afternoon part of my kids is this two hour chunk right? It's two hours. And if I get to that end of that two hours, my writing chunk will begin. And I don't have to yearn for it. I don't have to fight for it. I just have to understand that time is going to work itself out. And so that's kind of how I do it, I guess. Um, and then the other thing is just like, I talked about this this morning with some students, like continuing to center, like it is a joy to be a dad. And it is a joy to write. Those are two very joyous things for me. And so if I lose sight of the fact that they are joyous things, then I will, of course, start to count the minutes and start to try to figure out ways to get back to my writing table. And the reality is I, I get to be a dad. It's a great, great thing. It's an honor. Um, and frankly, like I chose to do it. They didn't opt in. Uh, and so it's kind of like my duty to honor that throughout. Um, and then the other like small element that like comes to mind too, is just like, I uh, someone, I forget what the numbers are. A friend of mine listened to a podcast though, and he talked about how they talked about the amount of time you get to spend with your kids. Like 70% of the time you spend with your kids in life is from like ages one to five. It's like a wild stat. And then, or it's like ages one to like 10. And then like 90% of that 70% is ages one to five. So like, it is the time where I get to actually establish this relationship and, and meet in a meaningful way. And so, yeah, I do try to really take care of it's It's more important than my books. It just is. Um, and books get to come second and they're a good, they're a good silver medal though. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, just to transition us back one to one other thing, because it's probably because it's close to my heart. I love science fiction huge fan. It's what I, I write science fantasy, but I just, I'm a Star Trek nerd. I love Star Wars, all those things. Um, and so especially when Nick Day came out, I was like, oh yeah. And I, well, and I actually, I feel like I see some of it a little bit in Ash Lords too. Like, again, I'm, I'm in the middle of it. So, but there's like some robots and stuff. So I'm like, oh, okay, this is fun. Um, and also I think that it's just a hard sell sometimes. Um, and I know you've already talked about some of this too, but I did want to talk a little bit about how you, did you go into it thinking I'm going to be a science fiction author? Was it just the world that you saw? Um, and also where you're just like, I'm just going to take the risk and go for it. Like, <laughs> I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm more traditionally a fantasy reader but I love, I always say that if a dragon or a spaceship shows up, I'll probably have a good time. Um, and so it's one of those things where Nixia in particular, I, I, I kind of said earlier, it didn't like come out of the gate fast and it wasn't seen as, as a success for my publisher, all that. That book has sold so steadily for like six and a half years now. 
And it sells so steadily because there's no other sci-fi books. Like there's just, or, or there's not many. We, we've we left this kind of hole in the industry. And, and the wild part to me is that like you have movies like Black Panther and, and you have Marvel movies that tap into this thread that like young readers love. They really love sci-fi. And we just like to pretend that they don't. Um, we also kind of like to pretend that boy readers don't exist. And so we stopped writing books that like really, really cater to them. And Nixia is one of the few books that often, I can't tell you how many times I've had a middle school librarian that will come to me and say like this one, he wouldn't read, but I gave him your book and now he's read the whole series. And it happens again and again and again. Um, so much so that I got kind of fed up with not having, you know, obviously fantasy, I'm proud of a door in the dark and I love what it is. My next middle grade series is called The Last Dragon on Mars. And it is space dragons. Like it's literally yes. like dragons that turn into spaceships. It's, it, it takes place on like a uh, an alternate version of our solar system where during the space race, we encounter uh, the moon dragon. And we realize that for every planet, every star, every moon, there is an avatar dragon that represents it. And so we, it, we have to work with them to go out into space and they quickly accelerate our reach into space drastically. But we also have all these complicated layers to what it means to be human, what it means to be dragon, all that good stuff. And so I am basically writing a Nixia book that is like for a slightly younger audience. And I'm so excited to be back in that type of world because I think kids are hungry for it. They're just so hungry to read stories that feel sleek and modern. And you mentioned Ashlords. Ashlords, I think I tried to I tried to funnel some of it, but I hear back from like Chicago public schools, places where they teach Nixia. And they'll say, yeah, our kids don't jump from from Nixia to Ashlords because Nixia feels like it's accessible. It follows this really accessible character. And then Ashlords is horses. And our kids in the city aren't like, the horses aren't their thing. Like they don't want to jump on a horse. And so I, I feel like getting back to my roots a little bit is, is really nice. But yes, sci-fi definitely has a big corner of my heart and it deserves to have a much bigger corner of our industry. Well, I have two boys and they're going to, they're going to love dragons on Mars. So <laughs> yeah. I'm going to love dragons on Mars. Let's be I'm real. I'm so excited. Yes. It's, it's definitely one of the cooler concepts that I've, I've gotten to work with. And it just, it's, mm -hmm. I got to do so much research because I have to like dig into like everything I can know about Ganymede and what that would mean for the dragon that represents it. What kind of personality will he have and how will he relate to the other G Galilean moons? And like, it's just, it was a lot of fun. I, I always so say like whenever I have an idea I'm thinking about it and then I just have to add in, what if it happened in space and so I actually yeah. a couple of months ago I was like dragons in space and now I hear that you're already <laughs> writing it so <laughs> that's like literally I mean my pitch is obviously more complex for like adults and librarians when I go into schools <laughs> I'm literally just gonna be like space dragons these are dragons that can turn into spaceships who wants what to more do you need yeah yeah <laughs> I love it um you earlier had mentioned a little bit about your writing group, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I wanted to talk about the importance as authors that we need to find a writing group and we need to get plugged in to our people. And so I was wondering if you had any tips on what to look for 
um, how to get connected with one, anything like that. Yeah, the how to get a connected one is hard because I feel like you just, it's like you kind of got to find them. I got really lucky. I was in a graduate school program with another teacher and I found out she was in a writing group and I had was like secretly writing all the time. And I was like, can I join? She's like, we don't have a spot. I was like, okay, cool. No. Uh, and then like <laughs> a week later, they they booted some guy who was kind of a jerk and said, hey, we'll have you. And I never looked back. I've been a part of that group for 11 years. Um that book, awesome. I, or that, that group collectively, I want to say has published, I think we're up close to about 25 novels between like four or five different authors. And we've had some come and go, but like that is a great group um, that has really seen a lot of success. And so the, the thing I would say, I don't know how to tell you to find one, I, but I can tell you what to look for when you do start testing the waters. And the number, it's like two things I think that every group should do for you, which is one, you should feel uplifted about your work, right? There should be like this element that like everyone's kind of honing in on what's good about what you turned in and what you wrote and, and what they liked about it so that you feel that positive energy heading home and you want to write, you want to tackle everything. Um and then the second thing is you should have, you know, a group that hand in hand with that, hand in hand with that positivity knows how to critique and knows how particularly to critique what you write. Because uh, we've had writers join us who like, we don't have the expertise needed to really critique their writing sometimes. Um, or you have writers who, who join in your group and all they know how to do is be critical and that's not helpful either. And so I think it's a mixture of both of those things, but I know that I love my group and I know my group's useful because I walk away wanting to write more and I walk away with a plan for how to write better. It's both of them hand in hand. Um, and yeah, I, I would, I would not be published without them. No chance. That's great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, one last question before we head to our lightning round. And that is, and you kind of already touched on this, but what's next on your writing horizon? Yeah. So I, yeah, I get to, um, whisper in the walls is obviously coming up. That's the second book in the series. I'm not even really sure if I'm supposed to share that, that, uh, title, but we've done it and it's fine. Uh, <laughs> I love it by the way. Yeah. We're all pretty good. Um, so that book, and that's the first book, I, I've shared this once or twice, but that was the first book I've ever turned in and had an editor be like, I don't have much for you. And I'm like, cool, let's do that more often. Uh, so it's it's really in good shape and I just found the perfect, I had this other plot that forever was sitting in the back of my brain and it grafted perfectly into that world. And so I just kind of got lucky, I think. But so I'll write uh, a third book either in that series or an entirely new idea and that that idea I cannot share although my editor has told me which one she loves uh and then um in May I, I released the sequel to the problem with prophecies it's called the drama with doomsdays that's my Celia Cleary series uh and then yeah I'm heading on to the last dragon on Mars which I hope to to have as a series and we'll see how that all rolls out but I'm I'm contracted up to about I think it's at 15 books now is what we'll be at. So we'll see how it goes. That's exciting. That's, that's awesome. awesome. That's awesome. Very cool. All right. So we've just got some lightning round questions for you. You can answer as short or as long as you like. We're not going to, we're not going to buzzer you out here. <laughs> um, so to start off, can you name a few books or just one that you're reading right now? 
I'm reading uh, Under the Whispering Door by TJ Klune right now. Um, I really love The House on the Cerulean Sea. I never know how to say that word, but that was a beautiful book. And I only just got the sequel. I know I'm pretty late to the game, but it's 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 really lovely so far. Awesome. That one's you- been on my to-be-art to list because I've heard how great it is. Yeah. That looks amazing. Um, what's a favorite drink or snack that you have either while reading or writing? I sit in coffee shops and just order vanilla lattes over and over and over again. I am a walking cliche. That's okay. <laughs> uh, do you, uh, I guess this is a little more for our romance uh, readers and writers, but do you have a favorite trope that you use or that you like, I should say? I, I you know, my favorite, my favorite trope, I think, is leaning in on like the found family element. I just think that's always going to be something that I cherish. And not because I, you know, I've got a lovely family, but those people who just become family in your life, I think is such a beautiful, wonderful relationship. And it's so common for young adults to start finding those pieces that they've been missing their whole life and and watch as they kind of just connect. And so I, I will always love that trip. What's a non-bookish hobby that you have? Uh, I really like sports. I'm like uh, maybe obsessively into fantasy football. Uh, we we had, I recently had a bunch of friends together to celebrate the New York Times uh, bestseller list announcement. And the two groups that sat side by side were my writers group and my fantasy football <laughs> league, which the fantasy football <laughs> league has been going for 12 years. The writers group has been going for 11 years. And they were both like, which group do you like the most, Scott? And I was like, I love everyone. I love you Everybody. all. Yeah, I, I, I like, yeah, various sports. Uh, one that does not cross over well with with the writing world is like, I love golf and no one else loves golf in the dark, in the, fantasy, <laughs> the fantasy writing world. So it is what it is. Actually, I think I saw in your stories, you just posted a golf thing. And literally, I, like, oh, yeah. I had two people respond and they were the exact two people I knew would respond. So, yeah. Hey, you got to share what you love, right? <laughs> Um, what, this is a tough question, but what has been the easiest book for you to write and what's been the hardest? Uh, the easiest book, I guess is going to be whisper in the walls. It required by far the least amount of editing. It flowed smoothly. So that one works. And then, you know, most authors will nod their heads at this, but my second book, Nixia Unleashed was so difficult. Uh, and I had to rewrite 98% of that book. Uh, it It was a complete scrap. So, yeah. Uh, If you had to live for one year in one of the worlds that you've created in your books, Mm -hmm. which one would you choose and why? I feel like I would die in most of them, but uh, (laughs) I'll take a door in the dark. I I feel like the magic is fun. And Rin, I am like a little, the one element I share with Rin is that I have, I'm like kind of that student of like, let me find every angle, every possibility and see what works. And so uh, I think I would love that element and that world building and that magic. Well, then my next question is perfect because it's what, if you could have one spell from a door in the dark, what would you choose? If that was like the one that you could use? Uh, you know, I was going to say the bridge spell earlier, but since you stole it, I'll Sorry. say, I mean, to be able to travel by waxway, like to light sure. a candle and jump like half a day's journey and teleport. I think that would be, that'd be my, my favorite. Yeah. That's a good choice. <laughs> yeah, terrifying. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't always go right. well, but ter- you know, it's useful as long as you don't get eaten. You know. Yes. <laughs> and then, lastly, what is one piece of writing advice that always comes to mind? 
Oh, this is such annoying advice, but it's the best advice. And it's just to write. You, you, if you love something, we, we, we think of writing as an art, like you're born with it or you're not. And it's just so not true. It is a skill. And if you are willing to put time in and develop it and dig in deeper, you will get better at it. And so my number one piece of advice is just sit down and spend time doing it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. So before we wrap up our interview, will you just let us know where people can find you online and where they can purchase your books? Yeah, my books are available wherever fine books are sold. Uh, and then I would say uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Both of those sort of an equal measure. So if you look for Scott Rankin, you will find me. I am the only Scott Rankin in the world. So, yeah. And I can admit that I did not know how to say your name, <laughs> your last name. <laughs> I, was okay. like, I think it was in a I don't know. It was in some podcast. I said, I was like, I'm going to butcher this, but I'm reading it right now. That was one of your books. My, so. Yeah. My web, my website is it's pronounced Rankin.com for that exact reason. Uh, it, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, and just for our listeners as well, I put a little note here. Um, I noticed on your website, you also have a writing class that you offer. Yes. You do school visits. There's a lot yes. of really cool ways that you interact. So yeah, the writing class in particular, I always forget that, especially for anyone who's out there kind of like for, you know, forging their path into the writing world. Um, it's through Writing Mastery Academy or Udemy there. It's on both of those sites. Uh, but they asked me after doing a, a summer workshop, if I'd put all, all that I know into a class. And so it's a five hour class that literally has like every writing tip that I could think up and put in a class is in there. So if that's helpful to you, uh, feel free to jump in. It's a, it's a good class. Awesome. Thank that's you so awesome. much for joining us. Thanks y'all. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Exploring the Blank Page. You can support this podcast by clicking the support button at anchor.fm slash exploring the blank page or by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Instagram at exploring the blank page podcast and individually at Kristen Crum and at create explore read. Until next time, stay safe and get creative exploring the possibility of your blank page.